0: You're listening to KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is a special bonus episode of Jackson Unpacked. This week, we're sharing an episode of the show Wild Card from our friends at KVNF in Paonia, Colorado. It's going to take you around the region with stories from Colorado and Utah about everything from avoiding food waste to the legacy of Japanese-American internment camps. We hope you enjoy it. I'd also like to take a minute to say that if you're enjoying Jackson Unpacked, and we hope you are, you can really help us spread the word by leaving a rating or a review for the show in Apple Podcasts. You can also show your support for nonprofit journalism in Jackson by becoming a member of KHOL today at 891KHOL.org slash donate. Thanks, and we'll be back with a new episode of Jackson Unpacked next week.
1: You're tuned to Wildcard. I'm Gavin Dahl news director at KVNF. This week, a special edition featuring stories from reporters at our partner stations around the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. Coming up, you'll hear legendary actor George Takei talking about his new show performed in Moab recently called Lost Freedom, A Memory, about spending the early part of his childhood in internment during World War II. We'll meet this year's Miss Navajo Nation, Niagara Rock Bridge, Plus, Fort Lewis College in Durango is reckoning with its past by removing inaccurate depictions of federal Indian boarding schools from campus. And we'll hear why students led a walkout protesting sexual harassment and gender inequality at a high school on the Front Range. First, we have two stories on food. According to a 2019 survey, one in 10 Coloradans reported they weren't getting enough food. This problem, food insecurity, stems from individuals not having enough money to feed themselves or their families. KSJD's Tay Glass looks at food insecurity in the Four Corners region and one potential solution that might already be in your backyard. Joe Hanel works for Colorado Health Institute. He's also
2: a big believer in raising and sourcing his own food. I'm sorry if my I have a lot of animals here,
3: <laughs> and they're squeaking in
2: it, it. If you're you're hearing a cat
4: and there's there are chickens outside, I think we're up to fourteen chickens now.
2: Food insecurity is a problem statewide, but especially in the Four Corners region.
4: Sixteen percent of respondents answered that they ate less than they thought they should because there wasn't enough money for food in the past twelve months. That is way higher than the state average of 10%.
2: According to Hanel and the report from the Colorado Health Institute, housing instability, low wages, food insecurity, all these issues are intricately connected. And it
4: actually is more of a widespread problem in rural areas than urban areas, which is, it kind of has a, a cruel irony to it when you think that rural areas are the breadbasket, that's where our food is raised.
2: Rachel Landis is the director of the Good Food Collective, a nonprofit organization based out of Durango. They started fruit gleaning three years ago, which basically means harvesting leftover produce in backyards and orchards and redistributing it to folks in need.
5: Honestly, what food banks and food pantries are always asking for is, like, they just don't have enough fresh fruit and veggies, which is what their clients and customers really, really want.
2: Last year, they were able to harvest more than 20,000 pounds of fruit by gleaning. I don't even understand what that quantity of food looks like.
5: (laughs) I'm like, what would you fill? Um, Well, I feel like the back of a pickup, if you were to fill that just straight up with fruit, that's like 2,000
2: pounds. It's like like 10 10 pickup trucks? Yeah,
5: something like that.
2: Based on their success in La Plata, the Good Food Collective hired a new gleaning coordinator for Montezuma County, Ashley Lancaster. She started just a couple weeks ago. This will be the first full season of gleaning in Montezuma County. Lancaster herself lives on a farm.
6: So this is my family orchard here. (laughs) Excuse our dogs. They think we're going for a walk. Um, And it usually produces more than enough fruit that we need for my family for the year.
2: The excess fruit and vegetables from her garden inspired Lancaster to take on this gleaning project.
6: I see trees all over and hopefully after this conversation, people will be out watching and, and seeing trees and be like, oh, well maybe I should go let my neighbor know about this.
2: Lancaster and volunteers for the Good Food Collective sort the fruit after harvesting it. Lower quality produce is used for pigs and livestock feed. The high quality stuff is saved for people. Healthier diets that include nutrient dense foods like fruit and vegetables are more expensive than less healthy alternatives. You don't pay for the calories so much as you pay for the nutrition.
6: I love being able to go and get fresh fresh food to give to those that are, you know, might be struggling a little bit right now with, with you know with the COVID or with, you know, just finding work in general.
2: Time and time again, sources spoke about how important programs like fruit cleaning can be to those in need. But Joe Hanel from the Colorado Health Institute and others said that fruit cleaning alone won't solve the wider food security issues in the state. Rates of food insecurity are higher for young adults, people with less income, rural communities, and communities of color.
4: I think the main takeaway from our food insecurity uh, report last year was that We live in the land of plenty, and yet there's still a lot of hunger. The ultimate solution is going to be
2: for everyone to be able to have a sustainable living wage. For the time being, there's other people's bountiful harvests and the volunteers raising their hands to glean the leftover fruit. For
1: KSJD and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Tay Glass. Next, Hannah Lee Myers from KGNU in Boulder reports on a new app to help avoid food waste.
6: It's that time of year. Backyard gardens runneth over, and gardeners might be having a hard time making sure none of those apples, zucchini, or tomatoes go to waste. Now, there's an app for that.
5: Fresh Food Connect is working on the really big issue of hunger in the United States along with food waste
6: and working to keep food local. That's Kayla Birdsong, CEO of Fresh Food Connect. The free Fresh Food Connect app that was piloted in Denver in 2016 is now operating in 20 different states and 1,500 zip codes nationwide. Here's how it works. So Fresh Food Connect basically works as a connector. We connect gardeners
5: through the app with nonprofits in their own communities. Once you have the app, you go in, you say when you have a donation ready, you'll indicate what kind of produce you have, about how much you think that it might weigh, and then you set up either a drop-off with your nonprofit partner or a pickup, depending on what they offer. So you schedule all of
6: that through the app with just a few quick clicks, and that's it. The USDA estimates that between 30 and 40 percent of the U.S. food supply is wasted. Thus far, a lot of the focus to address that problem has been on farmers, restaurants and grocers. Birdsong says the Fresh Food Connect app adds local gardens into the mix. 41 percent of Americans um, do
5: some form of gardening um, at home or in community gardens. There are about 35,000 community gardens across the nation. And that's a huge capacity of food. And what we've found is that You know generally across the country that has been really an untapped resource and so what we're trying to do is pull that food and all of those people into improving our our food access across the country Um, we believe that gardeners are some of the most generous people and when given opportunity and the
6: tools to make it very easy gardeners are really excited to tap into this work and it seems for many gardeners the connections made with local nonprofits are lasting. Once a gardener
5: in a neighborhood is connected with the nonprofit in their neighborhood, what we see again and again is that that gardener not only donates produce to that nonprofit's programs, but they start a meaningful relationship with that nonprofit who they may have not not even known about that
6: organization previously. One of the nonprofits utilizing the Fresh Food Connect app is Community Food Share. A food bank serving Boulder and Broomfield counties for 40 years, with an on-site pantry in Louisville as well as a mobile pantry. Community Food Share CEO Kim De Silva says, considering the extent of the need, they're happy for all the help they can get.
0: Food insecurity has increased dramatically during the pandemic. Uh, the most recent estimates indicate that 46,000 people in Boulder and Broomfield counties do not have enough food to eat or enough money to purchase the food they need on a consistent basis. And that really means that one in eight people struggle with food insecurity. And that is up from one in 10 prior to the pandemic.
6: And what about local kids? What do the numbers say about their food insecurity right now?
0: Yes, hunger is uh, truly a reality for one in eight children in Boulder and Broomfield County. And that's up from one in 12 prior to the pandemic. And really what that equates to is about 9,000 children are food insecure throughout Boulder and Broomfield County.
6: DeSilva says those unfamiliar with their work and the work of other local food pantries may be surprised who they serve.
0: You know, the food insecure individuals in Boulder and Broomfield County are just like you and me. They're our neighbors. They're our kids' playmates. They're people we work with. When you think about hunger, There's usually two things that come into mind uh, right away, and one is homelessness, and one is uh, individuals who may be jobless, and that is not the case, and a lot of it is to do with individuals who are working but just not getting enough money to sustain themselves and their families. We all know the cost of housing here is very expensive, and a lot of individuals' paychecks are going toward that housing allowance, the transportation they need to get to and from work. And at the end of the day, there's just not enough money for all of the expenses in which a family has.
6: Over the last year, Community Food Share distributed 13 million pounds of food. And DeSilva says the type of food they made available is a major source of pride. That also demonstrates a major shift in the goals of food assistance programs. 70% of our
0: distribution was either fresh produce, dairy, or high-protein foods. Throughout the last decade, food banks across the country and food pantries have really shifted their minds from originally when food banks and food pantries came into existence, it was to get food out into the community, to really meet this emergency need, and food was food. But then we really started to shift our thinking. I would say about a decade ago, we're really... Food is nutrition and nutrition is health. So how do we as food banks and food pantries really play into the role of health in our community?
6: One community member who's grateful for that shift in thinking is Mark Klein of Boulder. I was one of those
4: several people that, you know, oh, I don't need this. I can do it on my own and things like that. And it's just uh, something that a lot of people really do have a need for particularly uh, I believe the fresh vegetables and produce and things like that the local farmers are stepping up and providing uh, for me that's very important because that is part of my uh, health wellness regimen where I do a lot of you know my own cooking and things like that
6: Community Food share has long-standing programs that engage local growers and gardeners in donating fresh produce. The Food Fresh Connect app is just a new digital piece to that healthy food puzzle. Klein was excited to hear about the app and the idea that it could increase access to the fresh produce he relies on to stay healthy. To
4: have that, which they they love doing, and, and then they're able to share. I think they get a benefit, we get a benefit. Nothing goes to waste, and so I think it's all
6: around something that uh, gives a little bit of excitement and continuity and even connection. The nation's largest hunger relief organization, Feeding America, is estimating that next year, 54 million Americans could face food insecurity. Kayla Birdsong, CEO of Fresh Food Connect, says lots of gardeners are planning to add an extra row next season to donate now that their app is standing by to make sure nothing goes to waste. Oh, and community members like Mark Klein have a request. Needless to say, you always have Plenty of zucchini and squash, (laughs) and nothing against that. So next year, why not try growing something unusual? Your neighbors visiting the local food pantry would certainly appreciate it. For KGNU, I'm Hanalee Myers.
1: Durango's Fort Lewis College removed a series of panels from a campus structure recently. They depicted an inaccurate representation of federal Indian boarding schools that are part of the college's history. The removal was a ceremonial affair with several speakers and a drum group, KSUT's Sarah Flower attended and has this report.
7: The smells of sweet grass and sage filled the air, as the Skyhawk Nation drum group played for hundreds of people that gathered at the clock tower on Fort Lewis College campus for a ceremony to celebrate three panels being taken down. The panels that were removed were an inaccurate representation of federal Indian boarding schools that are a part of the college's history. Today, we'll hear from voices at the event, including tribal leaders, tribal elders, indigenous students, and college officials about what this experience was like for them.
3: My name is Manuel Lee Bitsui. I'm the Associate Vice President for Diversity Affairs. I am happy and a joyous occasion, and I think that it was one that's just a long, a long time coming. In my remarks, I talked about guiding principles around Truth, reconciliation, and healing. So, by acknowledging that intergenerational trauma that happens and that we still carry with us today, it was important to acknowledge that. And now we can be truthful about it. We can start looking at how we can reconcile our our past and begin the healing process, because that's what needs to happen.
1: It's important for these types of conversations for numerous levels. Understanding generational trauma, understanding how we adapt and change and be flexible to educating Native American students today. How we bring a lot of these educational components to tribal communities to make them successful. I'm so proud that our board and our administration and the faculty have had really in-depth conversations on how to make that impact, what that looks like, not just to the to the student, but mind, body, and, and spirit.
8: Xavier Pierre, and I'm a freshman at Fort Lewis College. I'm actually enrolled at Kootenai, that's in Montana. I thought it was very beautiful
3: and very like heartwarming, I guess. Like it just helps like connect as a people, because it helps different people from like different cultures know how hurt
8: we were by boarding schools. And this just reflects that uh, they're acknowledging that hurt
9: that they did to us.
0: Well, I think um, the important thing is to remember people in the past and people moving forward with this event and everyone that was present here. So you've got your past, your present, and your future wrapped up right here um, with what was just uh, symbolized in these three panels. And it, even though you may not be directly affected by this or even indirectly you know, affected by it, what is important of the, is that you were here, the people that were here, to witness this. And it will mean something more in the future if it doesn't mean a lot to them already.
10: You know, this is the beginning of many things to come. It's being recognized everywhere, and I feel that a lot of other states can benefit from things like this, learn from us, but we've just got the momentum going forward. So let's continue to, to do the right thing
3: and, and, you know, support it. Tom Strydekas, Fort Lewis College president. What a momentous day, and and what an honor to have the tribal elders, tribal leaders we had on campus sharing their stories. Um, I think Chairman Baker, in his remarks, said it best. This is our history. Uh, No matter where you come into the story, this Mm -hmm. is our history. And so for Fort Lewis College, it is important to acknowledge the reality that we started as a federal Indian boarding school. For Fort Lewis College, it's important to look at the symbols that exist across campus. In fact, our probably most iconic one, the clock tower, and to think about, yeah, there are three pictures, but there are three pictures that whitewash the experience of really what was nothing less than cultural genocide. And for those to be in the center of campus and for our students to walk by those, very inaccurate version of history, that's a problem. It's not so much the act of taking them down or what goes up next. It's really the conversation, the conversations that exist, that happened all over that quad of people who maybe had ancestors who went to boarding schools and people who were just hearing about boarding schools for the first time. That's what, to me, the beauty of Fort Lewis College is, that we could have that discussion in a truly inclusive way really honoring the students that we have the the privilege of serving.
7: Those are the voices of President of Fort Lewis College, Tom Stridicus, Chairman of the Southern Ute Indian Tribe, Melvin Baker, Tribal Member, Linda Baker, Freshman Student at Fort Lewis College, Xavier Pierre, Member of the Board of Trustees at Fort Lewis College, and Ute Mountain Ute Tribal Member, Ernest House Jr. And Dr. Lemanuel Lee Bitsui, Associate Vice President for Diversity Affairs at Fort Lewis College. For KSUT News, I'm Sarah Flower.
1: On September 11th, Niagara Rock Bridge was crowned the 69th Miss Navajo Nation. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio and KSJD, Sophia Stewart-Rozzi reports.
11: The 69th Miss Navajo pageant concluded on Saturday. Large in-person gatherings in the Navajo Nation are currently prohibited due to the ongoing pandemic, so the event was streamed live online. Hundreds of people around the world tuned in to find out who will be the 69th Miss Navajo Nation. According to the Miss Navajo Nation office, the role of the pageant is to exemplify the essence and characters of first woman, white shell woman, and changing woman, and to display leadership as the goodwill ambassador. Miss Navajo represents womanhood and fulfills the role of, quote, grandmother, mother, aunt, and sister to the Navajo people, and therefore she can speak as a leader, teacher, counselor, advisor, and friend. Three Diné women competed for the title this year, Shandine Yazzie, Niagara Rockbridge, and Oshkela Ironshell. The first day of the pageant started with sheep butchering and traditional cooking, followed by a day full of interviews. The contestants faced a range of questions from one of the Masters of Ceremony, Zane James. He spoke in Navajo and English.
3: For these young ladies that are embarking upon this journey, it's not an easy task, ladies and gentlemen. It's a very difficult task.
11: The interviews were at the Navajo Nation Museum and started with a series of questions about business leadership and contemporary skills in English. When asked about the impacts of domestic abuse, the first contestant, Shandine Yazzie, mentioned the lack of resources for abused women in the Navajo Nation and referred to lingering trauma. Yazi says in order to heal, the trauma needs to be addressed.
8: And one of the things that I want a lot of folks to know is that it's going to be okay, you're going to be okay, and I'm here with
11: you. Another series of questions were asked in Navajo regarding traditional knowledge. Traditional knowledge refers to wisdom, innovations, and practices passed down from generation to generation. Contestant Niagara Rockbridge blew viewers away with her Navajo speaking skills, but contestant Oshkela Ironshell backed out of the round of questions, citing severe anxiety. Dottie Lizer, the second lady of the Navajo Nation, shared her own language background in response to Ironshell's difficult decision. Like Ironshell and many other Navajo young people, Lizer didn't grow up speaking Navajo.
12: You know, I was raised in the Christian home. And so, but that doesn't mean I don't love my, my culture or my language. So have, have some compassion for her.
11: Thank you. Throughout the pageant, Ironshell struggled speaking fluently in Navajo, but she also shared her desire to keep learning her language to one day be fluent. Friday was the last day of competitions, with all three Danette women competing in a contemporary and traditional talent and skills show. (laughs) Contestant Niagara Rockbridge's contemporary skill was installing electrical components. Rockbridge grew up in a house full of brothers and is the only girl in the family.
13: It's very essential that I learn how to do things such as wire an outlet and all of these things so that way I don't have to depend on anybody or my brothers to do it. The
11: last Miss Navajo Nation, Dean Parrish, won the title in 2019. Because last year's pageant was canceled, she held the position an extra year. In 1999, the branch chiefs of the Navajo government agreed that one of their fundamental principles would be the preservation of the Navajo culture, and Miss Navajo Nation will present the importance of Navajo women with respect and honor. On Saturday morning, Miss Niagara Rockbridge was crowned as the 69th Miss Navajo Nation.
12: Niagara Rockbridge.
11: To keep following Rockbridge, head to the Office of Miss Navajo Nation's Facebook page or website. For KSJD News, I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi.
1: At 84 years old, Japanese-American actor George Takei remains a powerful cultural figure. He's a prominent gay activist famous for his witticisms on Twitter and beloved for his role as Sulu from the original television series Star Trek. In a new performance that debuted at the Moab Music Festival a few weeks ago, Takei says he's been called a lot of things, legend, icon, and enemy alien, lost freedom, a memory chronicles Takei's early childhood spent in Japanese-American internment during World War II. As Molly Marcello from KZMU reports, this is the actor's latest project to prevent racist hysteria from threatening American democracy again.
14: The sun is setting on a patch of desert in southeastern Utah. You can just make out the din of the state highway, carrying travelers back and forth from nearby arches and canyonlands national parks. But here, just minutes from those popular destinations is a simple dirt road, a little muddy after recent rains, a spot you would definitely miss if you weren't looking directly for it. Composer Kenji Bunch tunes his viola near some of the only remaining evidence that nearly 80 years ago, Japanese-American men were imprisoned at this site. A concrete slab and two cottonwood trees are some of what's left from the Moab Isolation Center. This is George Takei's first visit to the site. Throughout his life, he's made many pilgrimages to such places, unearthing their histories. There were 10 major Japanese-American confinement camps scattered throughout the West. Smaller isolation centers like this one in Moab imprisoned people who showed any sign of resistance to their own incarceration.
10: The World War II years was filled with madness on the part of the United States government.
14: Takei was five years old, his brother four, and his sister just a baby when the government removed them from their homes. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed an executive order sending the Takeis and thousands of other Japanese American families into imprisonment.
10: Approximately 120,000 of us summarily rounded up with no charge No trial, due process, the central pillar of our justice system simply disappeared.
14: The top U.S. decision makers justified the incarceration of their own citizens with a racist stereotype. They called the Japanese inscrutable, impossible to understand.
10: The absence of evidence was the evidence. We were subjected to the same kind of attitude toward Asian Americans that we are going through now with the pandemic.
4: George will rightfully remind us that there's been anti-Asian sentiment since there have been Asians in this country.
14: Violist Bunch composed the score to Lost Freedom, A Memory. He's speaking to me outside a popular Moab coffee shop, wearing a shirt that reads Asian AF. He's proud of his Japanese ancestry, but says harmful racist stereotypes are as present as ever. He calls anti-Asian harassment and violence during the pandemic a flare-up of a chronic condition.
4: And so it's not a, a recent problem. It's just an ongoing transgenerational racial trauma.
14: It's not lost on Bunch that just one generation ago, he would have been incarcerated. He pictures his own young children behind barbed wire, as Takei was at five years
4: old. Imagining them with their innocence and their trust, you know, imagining them having to experience that Uh,
3: It breaks my heart.
14: In Lost Freedom, A Memory, music and narrative weave together to center Takei's childhood perspective in the performance. This creates some bittersweet moments, like when young Takei is excited about sleeping in a horse stall. But much of it is simply heartbreaking. When his family is being moved to a higher security confinement camp, Takei's father tells his children... They're all going on vacation by train.
10: But I couldn't understand why so many of the grown-ups looked so sad. Some were crying.
14: Lost Freedom is another legacy project for Takei. He's spoken all over the world about Japanese-American incarceration, written op-eds in major newspapers, starred in a musical, and has a graphic memoir for preteens about his experience. He says he's using
10: all the tools I have as an artist to educate Americans today, as few Americans can, to tell that very personal story and share it so that we can have better Americans in the future.
14: For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Molly Marcello in Moab, Utah.
1: Students at Fairview High School in Boulder organized a walkout on September 10th to protest sexual harassment and gender inequality. It's the second walkout at the school in 2021. KGNU's Rosanna Longo-Better spoke with Randy Barber, Boulder Valley School District's Chief Communications Officer, and Sydney Wu, a junior at Fairview, who received parental consent to speak to KGNU on the record.
15: Today we walked out because the administration for years has... Refused to listen to us, to help us. And the only reason we had to help them or ask them to help us is because they failed us in the first place. They have been failing us for years. And, you know, the thing that I get so much is you live in Boulder. You don't understand, you know, real sexism. And that is absolutely untrue. You know, everyone believes that Boulder is the liberal capital of the world, that we treat minorities, that we treat women so well. But Believing that and giving ourselves this wonderful medal actually blinds us to our faults and to the very glaring sexism, the very glaring racism in our community. Because we believe that we have achieved perfection in some way. And as a minority, as a woman, as as an Asian woman, I can tell you that that is absolutely not true. I mean, I can just walk down the hallways in this school and tell you that that is not true.
13: You are here surrounded by your friends and people walk out and they just were asked by the authorities of the school to go back to class are they offering to do some action that will support you
15: I really don't think so and it is incredibly upsetting because this movement in particular both this walkout and the walkout in April were absolutely peaceful. We didn't yell, we did not destroy anything at all. We have been incredibly reasonable and um they they have chosen to ignore us and it is upsetting that through you know methods that are, you know, considered right and and peaceful that we are not listened to and They continue to say that they don't know how, but I think that it is because that they are not willing to make the effort because there is a lot that needs to get done, but just because something is difficult does not mean that you cannot start it, that you cannot make the effort to make things better.
13: Would you please also retell the story to the listeners of why you have done a second walkout? I am not entirely sure how many
15: details I am allowed to share, but I can tell you that um, our dean was brought uh, a case of sexual assault within within the school it happened during the school day in in the hallway I believe there was video evidence and he said boys will be boys you have to empathize with the men and I quite honestly think that his main objective is to keep Fairview out of the press, is to or at least have us have good press. I feel like that is both Fairview and BBSD's main objective is the view from
13: the public and not the safety of their students. How will you see a solution coming from the students, from the parents, or from the administration?
15: Quite honestly, I don't have a perfect solution. Um, I'm 16 years old, but for starters, and this I, I talked to our athletic director about this yesterday, is at Fairview. Every time we have a big football game, we have the cheerleaders come, we have the band march through the halls. I mean, our band is one of the best in the state, and it's treated like an accessory to the football team. You know, nobody shows up to the band competitions, but everyone shows up to the football game. You know, our girls' mountain biking team is one of the best in the state, and it gets absolutely no recognition. Actually, I would argue that it is the best in the state, our our girls' varsity mountain biking team. I have gotten no recognition, as uh, I was the only girl at regionals uh, this year, and there has been absolutely no recognition from the administration, so quite honestly, something that would be incredibly simple for them to do is morning announcements, banners in the hallway, maybe a bus to competition, and promoting sports that are not football, because that is what they have been doing for years, and it has affected our community very negatively.
13: Your final thoughts? Be the voice of these other students that are standing with you today.
15: This problem is not going to go away, and our activism is not going to go away until there is change.
13: Can you please give me your name again and tell me in which grade are you? I'm Sydney Wu, and I'm a junior at Fairview High. I'm here at Fairview High School, and there's a walkout organized by the students. I have the opportunity right now to speak with the communications person here at the school, and this is a great opportunity to understand further what is going on.
9: My name is Randy Barber, and I'm the Chief Communications Officer for the Boulder Valley School District. The Boulder Valley School District honors our students' right to protest. We believe that it's important for us to hear their voices. We understand that there are um, some of our, our students that are, that are upset, uh, that are hurt. Honestly, this entire community, to a certain extent, is hurt in that we're working through this process to try to build trust, uh, to understand where they're coming from, and, and to meet them where they're at. We hear what they're saying and believe that, you know, in many ways that we've met the requirements of, of what they're asking us to do, which includes hearing them, uh, our principal, uh, our interim principal here has already set up uh, listening sessions and, and is meeting with students and, and staff and, and our community to hear their thoughts. And, you know, Some of the things that we've heard from them is that they want uh, additional education around Title IX, uh, harassment, uh, sexual violence, and those things are uh, in progress right now. We actually are having a, uh, uh, a an event in which people can come and hear from, from uh, members of our community that will be talking specifically about what Title IX is and what that law does, uh, the protections that we have in place, the reporting. Uh, we've done a lot, actually, in the Boulder Valley School District to improve uh, since learning about uh, some of the issues that we've had here and hearing directly from our students in regards to their concerns on it. Uh, we've improved re- reporting. Uh, we've made sure that it's more visible on our website. Uh, we have changed our board policies around this to ensure that they uh, are, are appropriately meeting students' needs if they, if they come into a situation in which they need to report. Um, again, we are uh, 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 in the process of actually hiring a Title IX uh, coordinator that's going to be overseeing this work. Uh, we are in the process of, of actually putting into place a, 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 a Title IX council that will be uh, bringing in people, including students, including uh, some of our employees, including community members, to to ensure that we're hearing uh, what they need and, again, to be able to meet those needs long-term.
13: Thank you so much. For KGNU, I am Rosana longo
1: in what could be the largest wild horse roundup in state history, the Bureau of Land Management removed over 600 Mustangs from the Sandwash Herd Management Area in northwest Colorado in early September. Governor Jared Polis, along with conservation groups who've never before voiced concern about wild horses, asked the BLM and the U.S. Interior Department to stop the roundup. Katie and k Carbondale's Amy Hatton Marsh has this report.
8: The Bureau of Land Management, the agency responsible for most of the nation's wild horse and burrow herds, deemed this roundup an emergency, much like most of the roundups across the West this summer. Drought, said the agency, no water, insufficient forage. Ironically, the helicopter was grounded Friday due to heavy rains. Carol Walker, former director of field operations for the Wild Horse Federation, told KDNK that BLM is using the drought as an excuse to remove Mustangs from the range.
16: In the BLM handbook, it explicitly says that drought is not a reason for an emergency roundup.
8: Not quite, but close. According to Chapter 4 of the BLM's 2010 Wild Horse and Burrow Management Handbook, there are two exceptions to the official national gather schedule, escalating conditions or emergency. Drought removal is considered an escalating condition. That's because drought doesn't happen in a day. It takes months for dry conditions to develop to the point where animals are in danger. An emergency is more like a wildfire or a sudden disease outbreak. Chapter 4 was updated in January 2020 to include changes in the process for emergency roundups, but the word drought was not included. The BLM's Little Snake Field Office, which oversees the Sandwash Herd Management Area, or HMA, released a decision on August 17th to round up 733 Mustangs from Sandwash. Even though forage and water were mentioned as part of the decision, nothing was said about an emergency. Ten days later, on August 27th, an emergency was declared.
16: What happens in an emergency roundup is they do not go through NEPA. They do not go through a public comment period. They just do whatever they want, whenever they want, and usually the public's notified one to three days before it starts.
8: Indeed, the final decision notice for the Roundup stated that no new environmental assessment was necessary. The Roundup began five days later on September 1st. BLM has determined that the appropriate management level or rangeland carrying capacity for wild horses in Sandwash is between 163 and 362 horses. BLM's wild horse numbers can be confusing. They are estimates based on aerial census results and algorithms. Let's use Sandwash as an example. The most recent census in 2019 showed a little over 600 horses inside and outside the HMA. In July of this year, the agency said that 898 horses existed in and around Sandwash, including 728 inside the HMA and 100 outside the boundaries. Now, BLM claims there are 786 horses inside the HMA boundaries and 150 outside the boundaries, about 100 more than July. And since the low end of the carrying capacity, or AML, is 163 horses, BLM subtracted 163 from July's figure of 896 to get 733, which is how many will be rounded up. Carol Walker says there's something wrong with the AMLs on Sandwash and in other HMAs.
16: Initially, supposed to be reassessed as range health and conditions change, and they never were. I believe all the livestock should be removed from wild horse herd management areas.
12: And she's not alone. Some of the myths about wild horses that continue to be perpetuated is that they are degrading the range and they are responsible for the degradation of the Western Range. Nothing could be further from the truth. Delia
8: Malone is the chair of the Colorado chapter of the Sierra Club. She wrote a letter on August 31st denouncing the Sand Wash Roundup on behalf of the club. The oldest grassroots environmental group in the U.S. has never before taken a stance
12: in favor of wild horses. Very recently, after long discussions, Sierra Club national policy changed to embrace the idea that wild horses did indeed belong in herd management areas, and that livestock did not belong in herd management areas. And so with that revision in the policy, we were able to speak out against the Sandwash Basin Roundup. Four
8: livestock grazing allotments overlap the Sandwash HMA, running the numbers of sheep, Cow-calf pairs, wild horses, and the amount of forage allotted to them by the BLM is mind-bending. But Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER, has done just that. Again, Delia Malone.
12: PEER managed to obtain BLM's own rangeland data. And from that data, they document that degradation to the range in the allotments that overlap the Sandwash Basin herd management area, have been degraded by livestock to the point where there should have been reductions in the numbers of livestock that were utilizing that range.
8: The BLM allocates a certain amount of forage to ranchers and to wild horses. The allocation is called an Animal
12: Unit Month, or AUM. An animal unit month equals either one cow-calf pair or five sheep or one horse.
8: BLM documents show that three out of four grazing allotments on Sandwash have livestock on them, and the agency has allotted a total of 21,500 AUMs. That's enough for 107,550 sheep. The carrying capacity for wild horses at Sandwash, says BLM, is 362, max.
10: The appropriate action that the agency should be taking first is to get rid of the extra burden that livestock place on these ecosystems.
8: Eric Molvar, executive director of Western Watersheds Project, a conservation group, has also come out against the Sand Wash Roundup. Molvar says livestock have played a large part in range deterioration. For example, those sandwash allotments that have sheep on them?
10: Three out of four of them are listed as failing the rangeland health standards because of livestock. And in order to fail the rangeland health standards because the bar is so low, that's an extreme level of degradation. The DLM is basically conceding, based on its own analysis, that their management of domestic livestock has mismanaged the resource and led to resource degradation.
8: Colorado Governor Jared Polis and First Gentleman Marlon Reese have called on BLM to suspend the Sand Wash Roundup in favor of more humane ways to manage wild horses. But the Sand Wash Advocate Team, or SWAT, has been working with BLM since 2014 to humanely keep herd numbers low. The agreement with BLM included small bait trap roundups every few years combined with fertility control, No helicopters. But bait trapping happened within the HMA only once in 2016.
16: The volunteers, Sandwash Advocate Team, uh, has been doing PZP, but they haven't been getting birth control to enough mares. So the population has gone far beyond what the appropriate management level is, which I believe is too low anyway.
8: Again, Carol Walker.
16: So they are planning to round up this herd but they're saying they're going to do an emergency roundup because there's no food and water. Well, they've had a whole bunch of rain recently. The water holes are all full. The grass is growing again, and the horses actually look fantastic. In my view, the only reason you would want to do an emergency roundup is if the horses look terrible, they're dying of dehydration or starving.
1: For KDNK News, I'm Amy Haddon Marsh. The Sandwash Basin Roundup is now over, but the Bureau of Land Management is getting ready to round up 3,300 more stallions, mares, and foals from Wyoming's checkerboard lands.